In Canada, we've set ambitious climate targets for the next few decades, and that's going to require all sorts of construction of new projects. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Mike Holden, Vice President of Policy and the Chief Economist for the Business Council of Alberta. Holden's organization took the position that our regulatory process needs reform. It's designed to stop bad projects, but it has resulted in a timely, expensive review process that also stops or at least significantly delays good projects. Now, this is a hugely controversial topic, but the Business Council of Alberta recently put out a report about the ways it thinks we could reform our regulatory review process. As always, this interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Mike, thanks for joining me. Sure. So the Business Council of Alberta released a report, which I'll summarize very briefly as saying, we need major investments to achieve some of our energy transition goals, and we're not meeting them. And the regulatory system needs to be transformed to make it easier to build new mines, pipelines, carbon capture facilities, electrical transmission, et cetera. I guess the thrust of this report is that our regulatory system is set up to keep bad things from happening, which is very important. But now we need to create a regulatory system to enable things to get built. Yeah, that's a great summary. Okay. So you put forward some of the priorities you see, and I was wondering if you could run through them a little bit. Just to start, I mean, the reason why we're doing this work is because Canada has some very ambitious 2030 and 2050 climate targets, and they're going to require about five times the investment we're currently putting in every year in order for us to to meet those targets. And so if we are to have a chance of meeting, meeting those targets and attracting the kind of investment that we need to get there, that we're going to need to take a, a long, hard look at our project approval processes because we're concerned, uh, and this is sort of the, the main reason why we wrote this report in the first place, is that you know, there's only six and a half years until 2030, and we're concerned that we aren't even going to be able to approve the projects that we would need to achieve those targets, never mind actually build them and never mind actually operate them. So, you know, in, in a sense, that was what the main thrust of that uh, of our report was all about. Okay. So one of the priorities that's highlighted in terms of solutions is that we should create a government oversight body to manage permitting. And I wonder if you could talk a little about what you imagine. Sure. You know, I actually don't think it would require that much additional funding at all. The the issue is this. So you've got, you know, a company puts forward a project. There's kind of sense two stages they went through. One is kind of the the environmental and the impact assessment stage. And then the government decides whether or not, and if so, under what conditions that project goes ahead. And so that's kind of phase one. And then then you actually have to build a thing. And so that's where you get this, the phase two of this, and that's where the permitting comes in. So you need a whole range of permits from a whole bunch of different departments and agencies in order to build. So from Department of Fisheries, from Transportation, from whoever else, and, and then potentially also from the provincial and municipal governments. And each one of those potentially has its own impact assessment and community consultation exercises. And you end up kind of doing them one at a time. And there's a whole lot of overlap between each of them in terms of the kinds of questions you ask, the people you consult with, and especially on the, on the Indigenous consultation side as well. And so what we're proposing is an oversight body within the federal government that kind of shepherds these things through. So, for example, you might have one large and extensive round of consultation that kind of covers off all the different issues that would otherwise be covered off in each of these individual permitting processes. And if you do that, you can avoid a lot of duplications and it wouldn't even cost that much money. You would just need a small group of people within the federal government to 
shepherd the process along and enforce service and performance standards on it. Right. For a country of about, I think we're about 40 million people now, it seems likely you would need at least a couple dozen people when you think about all the projects, sort of at a minimum. Potentially, yeah. I mean, we haven't really run through the numbers of what that would look like. Obviously, it would depend on how many projects were on the docket at any given point in time. But we're not talking about the creation of a whole new federal department here. It can be a group of of individuals, but that's kind of what they do off of the side of their desk or as part of their regular work. It's just a matter of establishing and enforcing standards and running this permitting through. Okay, I could see how a single oversight body without enough people or resources could also backfire. We can talk about that. Another priority mentioned in the report is to shorten the time frame of the regulatory process. How would you get people on the opposite end of the political spectrum to get on board with this? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And uh, so when we talk about shortening or trying to shorten review timelines, it is absolutely not about cutting corners because what would end up happening if you did that is that, first of all, you would, you know, circumvent impact assessment work, you'd circumvent environment oversight, and you would end up in a situation where you would welcome protest, you would welcome dissatisfaction within the population, and you don't really have that sort of social license to build. If you compromise that, then you're not going to get anywhere. I think that the uh, in terms of how you shorten the timelines, it's not about like ramming something through a smaller period of time. But if you look at how the various review processes are currently structured, there are a lot of opportunities to stop the clock along the way or the ability for the federal government at various points to request extensions or certain processes that don't have a timeline attached to them. And those are things that I think can be done within the prescribed timeline that would shorten things already, or that there are ways to reduce some of the duplication and overlap like I talked about earlier. So it's just a matter of you know, taking a look at what appropriate consultation is and, and making sure that that's achieved, but not continually expanding it in ways that are redundant or unnecessary. In in the report, you talked about adequate consultation, what constitutes adequate consultation. And another one of your pointers related to shortening the review process was providing financial support for Indigenous participation. And this is something I've come across is that there's some sort of large scale infrastructure project, whether it's a dam or a mine or a pipeline, it'll pass through or be on Indigenous territory. I'm thinking of specific projects where I've spoken to Indigenous people who said, we've been here for a long time, we have our way of life, and then we have 90 days to comment on either it's a road that opens their land up to development or something else. Mm -hmm. They would agree with you that they need support for Indigenous participation, but I've also heard them say that they need more time. And so I wonder what kind of view you came to on that. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we did discuss it at, at length. And, and so we did have um, Indigenous representatives that were on our task force that helped us draft the recommendations in our report and consulted widely with Indigenous groups afterwards as well. The one of the things that's really changed in the last several years is businesses recognize that none of these kinds of projects that they're proposing, they cannot and should not be done without local Indigenous participation, both from a sharing of economic benefits standpoint as well as a thorough and and adequate consultation standpoint. And so in in a sense, those are two different things. Where we see the opportunity is in capacity building and access to capital, because there are quite a few Indigenous communities. And of course, you know, this is not, views vary um, from community to community and from person to person. But, you know, there, there are a large number of Indigenous communities who do want to have this kind of consultation. 
Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. Sure. So let's go back for a second and talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline or TMX, which would add capacity to an existing pipeline to the tune of about a million barrels of crude and and other refined products that would basically travel from Edmonton to the coast of British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And there were something like 18 court challenges. And but I do know that at least one of those was successful, that although this had been challenged so many times, no one had considered how building a pipeline to the coast would cause an increase in tanker traffic and affect marine wildlife in BC. So on the one hand, you can hold it up and say like, this is what's wrong with the review process is that you can be an environmental opponent, you can be a business opponent. There's numerous ways that you can oppose a project and you can use the current regulatory system to delay it. But on the other hand, you can see how even major projects have these impacts that aren't always studied because these are enormously expensive, time-consuming processes. And so I wanted to ask you how you see this situation getting resolved, because I don't know of any models or anything like that uh, in, in other countries that work better or that people have held up. You're 100% right. This is a, a complicated issue. And, and what really complicates it, I, I think, from our perspective and from the people we've talked to, is that, as I said before, uh, perspectives vary and, and views vary. So, you know, if you use the Trans Mountain Pipeline or any other project, you will find Indigenous individuals and communities, some of whom are very much in favor of these projects because they provide not just jobs, but careers for people. They provide equity partnership opportunities. They bring a lot of revenue into their communities. But on the other hand, but there are some that don't. And so how one decides who speaks for Indigenous people is not up to me or anybody else to decide. It's up to those communities themselves. That's certainly a challenging issue, and it's one that I don't have an answer to. But it's, I, I think we're slowly making progress on what that means, on what consultation means, on what engagement means, on what um, participation and economic benefit sharing means. And they're, they're complicated issues, and there's no straightforward answer to them. Right. And I mean, we're talking about Indigenous communities, but my sense is that this is bigger than sort of Indigenous reconciliation. It's an economic issue that is really tied up in politics. And like we tried a couple of years ago, 2018, 19, they did reform the Environmental Assessment Act and we replaced it with the Impact Assessment Act. And the mining industry supported this bill, but the oil and gas sector was staunchly opposed to it. And even industry, it seems like, do not agree on what the proper way or scope for these environmental reviews should be. That That's true. It's fair. I, I think that the main concern, as I recall from oil and gas sector at the time, was about, there were a couple of things. One was the a large number of opportunities to stop the clock and what was on paper a process that should take three years or so, depending on, on the project, would in practice end up taking much longer. And the second concern was that there was a, a cabinet decision or a ministerial decision that would decide whether the project would go ahead. And so it was that sort of political uncertainty that, that they were opposed to. I think that one of the things that the industry advocated for in the early days was for there to be some sort of an early warning or early signal from the government about or whether a given project was something that, assuming all went well with the consultation and review processes, that it would be a project that would get approved at the end of the day. And their concern, and this is still is a concern for a number of projects, is that companies could potentially spend hundreds of millions of dollars and years and years preparing, conducting all of their consultations and impact assessments only to have the minister or the or cabinet at the end of the day just decide it's not going to go ahead. 
So that was the primary concern. You know, if you're renovating your house and you didn't know whether you're going to get the permit and you needed to buy all the stuff in advance and get going and, and start doing the work, and then suddenly find out that, nope, you weren't going to get the permit for, for reasons that might seem arbitrary to you, even if they're not, you know, that's, that's a lot of expense and time and planning you went through. And so why would you even bother? Well, I like the housing analogy because, you know, when you build a house, you have some idea going into it what the rules are you know, whether or not you can build four stories on a single family house or whether or not you can build a 15 story condo in a particular spot or not, you have some idea going in whether or not something's going to be controversial. And I imagine it's probably true for a lot of these projects. I wonder when you guys were talking about this, how much of it, in your opinion, is politics? I don't have a good answer for you, really. I mean, there's a concern that politics does play into it. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, how you just just going back to your house analogy, in a way, that's kind of how it would be great if it worked. Like you knew if the zoning requirements were such as they are and you knew what was allowed in that neighborhood and you knew what rules and you know what it is that you need to do, then you can feel reasonably confident that you can build the thing according to those specifications and it's going to be fine. And I think that for some of these projects, there, there isn't that. There is still this specter of a there's a decision at the end of it that's based on whether this is in the net benefit of the country. And the criteria by which we determine whether it's a net benefit are not laid out. So what is the most important step that can be taken to improve the environmental review process in a broad sense to make it more expedient? Is it first off deduplication so that you're not repeating everything for provincial and federal? That's actually a pretty good one in terms of areas where we can work. So there's the Cedar LNG project in BC is a good example where the federal process was substituted for the provincial one. Now, both governments needed to approve it at the end of the day, but it did help with some of the feed duplication. And plus the fact that it was an indigenous-led project also helped to smooth the way for a number of the issues that would normally come into play. I think in our report, we outlined a couple of simple things that would be what we call needle movers, like our first initial steps that would help change the discussion. And one of those is, so under the Impact Assessment Act right now, the Environment Minister has the ability to designate a project as falling under the IAA purview, even if it doesn't necessarily meet the criteria. So it's sort of like they can decide if a project qualifies or not. And there aren't clear specifications for what it would take to trigger that to happen. And so we think small, simple steps like that, clarify and specify and consistently apply the rules under which, or the conditions rather, under which you would designate a project as falling under this particular review process would go a long way towards creating the kind of clarity that businesses are looking for. I'll maybe try to end this conversation on some sort of positive note. I know President Biden has made remarks that it's easier to build a mine in Canada than it is in the U.S. And meanwhile, the U.S. is talking about expediting permit reviews for certain mining projects. Given that there seems to be this new consensus emerging around climate change, a process that's accelerating and costing everyone money, and there's all sorts of government money flowing into building new supply chains, do you see a new political consensus emerging that could resolve some of these issues? You know, I actually do. So I'm actually in in Ottawa right now. We're releasing this report that we're talking about today. And you know, we've had a number of meetings with the federal government about this, and we have a couple more still to come. And, you know, we've been talking about this issue for about a year, the various trips that we've had to Ottawa, and the view on this really has changed. And 
part of it is because it can't take 10 to 15 years to build a new mine if you really want to develop a critical minerals industry or stop the sale of all internal combustion engine vehicles. I mean, you need the supply chain. Like, you can't wait 10, 15 years to build a mine to get the raw materials to do it. So we do see a consensus there. And there's a sense of urgency, I think, within the federal government to look seriously at these issues and to figure out what they can do within existing systems to make them faster and more efficient without cutting any corners. I think also with the U.S., as you said, the U.S. is doing the same thing right now. The other critical part of this is that the U.S. has... Uh, deep pockets, and they're spending a lot of money on significant subsidies and incentives for businesses to locate in the U.S. And Canada can't compete with that. We just, our pockets aren't deep enough. But we can, however, work on our regulatory and, and project approval processes and potentially use that as an advantage so that we don't see a large move of these kinds of investments from Canada to the U.S. Because if the U.S. does move to permitting project and getting things done within two years, that's a major advantage. It would be tough to keep investment here if the U.S. had both the financial incentives and the faster review process. Sure. Mike, I really thank you for coming on the show today to talk to me about these issues. Oh, I mean, it was a good time. Thank you. That was Mike Holden, Chief Economist for the Business Council of Alberta. That's this week's episode of Down to Business. Thank you for listening and thanks for supporting us. Bryce Hall executive produced this episode, composed and performed the original music and designed the Down to Business logo. Victoria Wells, Pamela Heaven, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with more episodes in the future. Until then, find your business news at financialpost.com.